there's, there's a celebratory buzz, isn't there? Celebratory. Welcome, everybody, to satsang. <clears throat> and um, I'd like to begin uh, my talk in the way that uh, my guru, Baba Muktananda, began his talks by saying in Hindi, Sabkabharasanmane kesat pemse hardik swagat. With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. Is she getting them made? She's like, it's fine. It's getting some water. Huh? It's getting some water. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's quite. Uh, uh, <clears throat> quite something, you know. Um, uh, Bob uh, Bob Dylan was was with um, Tom Petty. Tom Petty. Oh, wow. They were on that tour. No, and, no, no, it wasn't that. It was what? No, no, it was not. But he, but uh, they were traveling together, and there was a third guy there, and. Uh, and um, I said to Bob, Om Namah Shivaya, Bob. No. I just was so overwhelmed by the, the uh, auspiciousness of the, the symbology of it all. It was good. You know, and, all, and June 11th has a double significance in my, my biography because 50 years ago tomorrow uh, came my, my main trauma and nervous breakdown in the Ganesh Ashram. Uh, well, that was the date. I've told the story in uh, my Learn to Meditate class and also in my memoir. But I went through, uh, you know, when you're doing sadhana, you're doing spiritual practice, and you're doing a high level of it with a, a great guru in, in the ashram, and you're, you're doing the daily discipline, daily programs, and so on, you burn through a lot of things, and then things come up from God knows where, from your unconscious, and I was doing very well in the ashram with Baba. I thought, here I am sitting at the feet of a great guru. I'm getting in touch with the Shakti. I'm overcoming certain negative tendencies, and I'm having more and more experiences of the self and of upliftment. And then I ran into a brick wall about uh, two years into my stay. And uh, it's a whole complicated story but I went through a period of incredible fear. And uh, because I was studying astrology at the time, uh, and I'm the type of uh, mind that if I study astrology, I always look for the worst aspects that might happen in the future. Where's our astrology? So I look for where Mars will be a squared Saturn and interface with, you know, I look for that, it's, it's a New York thing. <laughs> Other people look for where Jupiter and Venus are celebrating together, you know. Uh, but uh, New York, we look for the worst case scenario. And um, so I, I saw all kinds of things happening on June 11th of that year, 1973. And it, I finally had a, practically a nervous breakdown over it, thinking, Everything was lining up, and, every, and I would be meditating, and I'd try not to think of it, and I'd say, oh, my God, Mars and the moon and this and that. All these things were lining up, uh, and I became 
deranged, and uh, I burned in this for weeks, and I couldn't talk to Baba. I couldn't even go near him, and it, it was impacting me so much. I thought, there's certain death on June 11th. I thought my wife, Girija, would die. That's what I actually thought. That she would certainly die on June 11th. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I was in this state. And, uh, and I was thinking, from Baba's point of view, see, I, I had no idea. I couldn't speak to him or do anything. So I used to watch him from a distance. And I'd see he'd go like that, and I'd say, that's confirming that death is so... <laughs> And then I'd say, then you go, oh. And if you go, oh, then I'd say, that's certainly true. And then one day I was uh, in the garden doing my, my uh, watering and, and uh, my garden work and uh, thinking, oh, death is certain. <laughs> woe is me, woe is me. And he came right up to me. He walked up, he walked right into my face like that and started going, Om Namah Shivaya. Like that, whispering right in my, like it was literally this close to me. And I'd never been that close to him before. And I was like, and he says, he says, do it 24 hours a day. And he says, do it for four hours intensely. And then he walked away. And then he came back and he said, put an ohm at the end. More powerful. And then he walked away. And I was like stunned because it was unprecedented. And I realized he was responding. And so I think, what was Baba? Baba's looking at his thing. You know, I could see him there going, oh, Shankar's doing well. Look, he seems to have Shakti is very good. And then a week goes by, two weeks. What the hell's wrong with him? <laughs> look at that face. Oh my God, I can't look at him. He's got no Shakti, he's miserable. It looks like, what the hell's going on? Maybe it'll be better tomorrow. Nope. <laughs> the hell is wrong? Well, I'll give them a week to get over it themselves. It's better if they get over it themselves. Nope. <laughs> I better do something or he'll be in the loony bin. So I'll go see him. <laughs> That's Baba's perspective. What? Well, <laughs> look at that face. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so the June eleventh. So so uh, so I, I I started applying the mantra. I went immediately after work that day. I went down to the cave, a really beautiful, powerful, dark uh, little meditation cell that we had there, and I started doing it, and the um, uh, next day he sees me, he says, how's the mantra going? I said, that's good. <laughs> and then uh, he asked me the second day, and that was it, never mentioned it again, and by two days, my state had shifted, and it was just fantastic, because I saw that it, it was in my hands, that, that all of this was a drama of my own imagination, and my own mind, my own insanity, and that I also had the power by applying practice and applying the mantra, the powerful mantra of, of the lineage, I could overcome it, you know, because, you know, we are all hit occasionally by strange in, inner things, uh, misery and fear and worry and rage and paranoia and all kinds of things. 
and then you can use the mantra and you can actually do something about it rather than being always at the effect of circumstances or even of your own mind. So June 11th is a doubly, uh, doubly good holiday or celebration. Yes. So I thought, what should I do on June 11th? I thought, Orbindo? No. Yoga Vasistha? No. Baba. <laughs> so I'm going to do my program, which I call Ganeshpuri Days, which is sharing some of the question answers with Baba during the time that I was uh, with him. <clears throat> and we used to go into his room several times a week, because there weren't that many of us, so we could fit in the room up and down the corridor like this. And uh, we would write questions. And he didn't speak English. He spoke in Hindi. And uh, they were translated by Professor Jain, who was uh, his translator. And, um, and we would do these questions. And we would ask him all kinds of questions. There was, was always the highlight of the, the week. We didn't have television. We didn't have internet. We didn't have uh, the Fillmore East rock and roll. We didn't have what? Devices. The devices. Devices. No, no devices. And uh, that was our entertainment. That was our TV. That was our everything. So we'd go see Baba in his room and ask him questions. And they'd be about everything, practical things, as you'll hear, and spiritual things. So here's one from July 18th, 1972. Uh, what? Boto. Yes, let's see. Sorry. This is a Baba from my era. That's his signature, yeah. So there's Baba. Yeah, that's from India, definitely. Go ahead, next. Now this is a little before my time. This is early days of the ashram. Uh, and uh, he basically planted and... <laughs> what was that? That's the Bible. Next, huh? <laughs> Next. Oh, he's blowing bubbles. Somebody gave him uh, bubbles, so he started uh, blowing bubbles there, looking very cute. <laughs> Sitting on the steps of his little porch there. <laughs> so, Nick, is that it? Okay. Okay, so this is from July 18th, 1972. That's uh, about a year before my, my event that I just described. Um, this is Kedarnath asks, and I'll have to tell you a little bit about Kedarnath. He says, since I've been here, two saptas of the Hari Ram chant have taken place. <clears throat> and sapta was a seven-day chant where Hari Ram was chanted the way we did it, but for 24 hours a day for seven days. And you went in shifts. Everybody was given a two-hour shift. And then other people, and, and uh, you'd also be dancing around a the flame. There'd be, uh, so it was an amazing program. Uh, and uh, it was all over the loudspeakers, so the whole place was intoxicated with this. And you could sit there for hours if you wanted to. But you had two hours, you had to walk around the flame and chant. And I was on duty in the night. I was on duty for uh, throughout the whole night. 
the men were the men would chant during the night, and I was on the hall monitor there, so I was there all night. And then the women would come on in the morning. <clears throat> so Kedarnath says, "I've been here for two saptas. We'd have them on Guru Purnima or Baba's birthday. I don't know different celebrations. Um, and during the sapta, I've had many new experiences. So so much shakti, so much energy that that have spiritual experiences. But after the sapta." I've not been able to hold on to any of these experiences. <clears throat> Certain experiences came all of a sudden, but they've never recurred. What is the reason for this? I've also felt that the chanting makes it easier for me to control my mind and senses. So, trigger alert. Baba answers in quite an unexpected way. Let me say something about Kedar. Kedar was... Uh, always sit, standing at Baba's, uh, he was on duty at Baba's post there, and Kedar was very, in our vernacular, a very peculiar fellow. And he's very uh, talkative, and uh, peculiar, very emotional and expressive and so on. And uh, he, later, he later became a Swami. He was an Indian fellow. <clears throat> but Baba really tears into him now, okay? So that's why I say trigger alert. Baba says, why did you let the sapta slip through your hands? Why didn't you hold it firmly? <clears throat> it's only because you let the sapta slip from your mind that you fell into that condition. So it's all your fault. I've observed something extremely funny. That is, those people who apparently go into intense states of meditation and who have all kinds of kriyas who shake their heads violently and do all kinds of things are usually the ones who are talking big and saying things which they don't even understand themselves. <laughs> now, in those days particularly, because of the awakened kundalini, there would be all these involuntary movements. And some of the people, very peculiar people often, would have all kinds of movements. Kedar had extreme movements. And so Bob is really getting into him. And anybody who had these movements would have been chastened by this answer, I would think. <clears throat> he says, during my secret inspection rounds, <laughs> I have seen that in public these people make a show of meditation, but among themselves they indulge in gossip. <laughs> <clears throat> so I don't know how seriously to take your words, whether to believe that what you're saying is true or just another pretense. There must have, see, there always had to be a story behind this that he would be roasting him so badly. <laughs> or, or, or even possible that he's roasting somebody else and, and uh, Kedar is kind enough to stand in. You never know what was going on there. But there was something going on because I can smell it. There are people who claim that they get deeply interested in chanting, but when they get free time, I don't see them chanting, I see them gossiping. <laughs> I haven't heard you chanting Hare Ram, Hare Krishna during your free time. I hear you talking about what the food is cooked in the kitchen, the ingredients, where the visitors put their shoes, and what the elephant eats, where the elephant's food comes from, what Venkapa is busy with, Venkapal is one of the managers of the ashram. <clears throat> and what those other people could be writing about. 
people, you know, because there would always people be taking notes, what they're writing about. <clears throat> These are the different themes of your holy satsang. <laughs> and that doesn't convince me that you're really interested in what you say you're interested in. People may think that I retire to my room and I'm not aware of anything. They are mistaken. And don't you know that I watch every little detail? Don't think that I'm meditating all the time on myself. I can also meditate on you <laughs> and what's happening in the opera. <laughs> and I can see very clearly how a certain person who happens to be writing dozes off in the middle of writing, leans back and has a comfortable sleep. I'm also aware exactly what people are doing. So it, this is like, I remember my experience was caught between high comedy, because Bob was being incredibly funny, like a stand-up comic, and terror and misery, because he was frying people. And whatever he fried anyone, I always got fried. Because I would always say, he's talking about me. He may be saying, oh, he's talking about me. I knew it. <clears throat> I don't see people sitting in silence in drawn. If you've really begun to enjoy the inner nectar and find it hard to understand, I find it hard to understand how your taste for it can decrease. Those poor fellows who are not able to meditate keep quiet because they do not know uh, what they're not able, that they're not able to meditate. It is only those who seem to be meditating intensely who talked in a certain manner about meditation who seem to be the most disturbed, the most agitated about various things. <clears throat> One who has genuine interest in the divine name and chanting would not be a chatterbox. And a chatterbox would never be able to enjoy the nectar of the divine name. There is no point in just saying that you're having a certain experience. You should really have that experience. And if you're having that experience, if you're really sipping the inner nectar, there would be complete contentment, so much so that you'd become silent and still, and all actions would fall away from you. Now he gives uh, uh, the upadesa, the teaching. Talk less. Don't sit for satsang with others. Don't gossip. Do not listen to anyone talking ill of others. What makes you think that malicious gossip is, the is as nectarian as the mantra? Therefore, repeat the mantra intensely. So that's what we were there. We were there to do intense spiritual work, and Baba kept the fire blazing all the time, and uh, he kept it going, and he, he always encouraged us or shamed us into doing more and more practice. Um, it was a benevolent dictatorship. <laughs> he says, those who repeat the divine name should slide into inner silence spontaneously. And it's true that after you have repeated the, the mantra for a while, you suddenly discover that you're falling into a deep state of meditation quite easily and quite automatically. And this happens all the time. For those people, Taking a vow of silence is not, for those people, taking a vow of silence is not at all necessary. In the future, talk less and remain by yourself. Do not sit with others and gossip because wrong company can be very harmful. Maybe he, he'd been negatively gossiping and Baba knew it, so something like that. 
<clears throat> even if you're exchanging good words, at least for that time, you'd be keeping yourself deprived of the divine name. <clears throat> and Baba really uh, talked to us about repeating the mantra, a great method. It'd be great to have a, a sapta. Not, not, not maybe seven days, but, but maybe one day. People could do that. We, can, we could probably muster that. You can tell Devi Ma. <laughs> we'll do that. <clears throat> okay, and another one. This is uh, 8 December 1971. I'd been there about uh, eight months, I guess. And this is a completely different tech. Natalie. Natalie's a French girl who uh, used to work in the bookstore with Girija. It was Girija's assistant in the bookstore. <clears throat> what is the right way of drinking? <laughs> she does not mean what you think it means. Drinking water. Is it better to drink only between meals? <laughs> Can you drink as often as you feel thirsty? Or is it better to refrain yourself? And she was very, very disciplined little girl and uh, very anxious to do the right thing, the yogic thing. So she's asking even a detail like how much water she should drink. And Baba says, Kabir says you should filter water before drinking and adopt a guru with open eyes. So in India, they, they, uh, they put the water through cheesecloth to, to purify it, to strain it. So you should filter water before drinking. It says you shouldn't drink your water without filtering it and you shouldn't accept a guru without examining that person. That's what he's saying. Drinking water should be pure. There is, however, one very good rule relating to drinking water in the morning, <clears throat> which is called ushapan. That doesn't mean that you take water which has been put in the pot by usha, he says. It means, usha means morning. So morning, this is ushapan, it's morning water. Okay? It's good to drink half a cup of water after waking up in the morning. This must be Ayurvedic. All right? You're gonna, you yogis out there, you'll pick this up. <clears throat> I've been drinking water in the morning for a very long time and always keep a glass of water by my bedside when I go to sleep. The water which you take in the morning will help to clean your bowels completely and will also circulate throughout the different veins and arteries and remove impurities. <clears throat> While you're eating, only certain kinds of food need water. Uh, there are others who don't need any, other, any water. The scriptures say you should take a spoonful of water before starting a meal, and that helps very much. If there's anything sticking in the throat, that will be washed down. Water's a great friend to prana, to, to breath and to energy. You know, we used to do that. We used to take some water in our hands and spread it around and then drink it like that before circle around the, to consecrate it and say the mantras a certain number of times. What <clears throat> uh, is a great friend to prana? Before starting a meal, you should take a spoonful of water and you must chew your food well. You can take a little water after you've finished your meal but if you've eaten kheer made from milk, then you must not drink water. In the case of other foods, after finishing a meal, you should have a stroll, and then after about 15 minutes, have a drink of water. That is very good. So kheer is uh, a, 
kind of a liquid sweet, and there's different kinds of kir, but one is uh, milk kir. We had that, didn't we have recently, or not? It's rice, and uh, uh, there's one with uh, gelatin of some sort. Anyway, it, it, we would, it was thought in the ashram that if you drank water with it, you would be doomed. <laughs> I'm not sure. I didn't test it. <clears throat> the body does not need water again and again. You may, however, feel thirsty, uh, even if you're work- thirsty often if you're working in the sun. In that case, you're thirsty, take a little water. So there's a practical one. <clears throat> okay, question. Devotee. I'm not inclined towards the spiritual path. Shouldn't I therefore believe that God does not wish it and that such an inclination will come when he wants wants it to? Baba, if that's really your view, why not have a similar belief in all matters? For example, why did you build a house? You should have sat quietly in one place, allowing God to build it for you, if he so willed. Instead, you took so many pains and so much trouble to think and plan about everything carefully, to decide to purchase land from the government, to take a loan from the bank, and to build a house of a particular type so that it would cost less and fetch a good rent and would be useful to you in your old age and ultimately to your children. Just as you think and plan ahead in worldly matters, in the same way you must think about the higher life also. I like him saying the higher life. There's a life higher than eating, money, food, all that. There's something higher, and that's the goal of meditation, to know consciousness, to know the self. He says, try to realize who you are and where you've come from where you'll go after death, and where true happiness lies, and what God is, and how to attain him. Why not be determined and make every endeavor to realize him? Or said another way, to know your true self, your deepest self, know who you really are, and to find that place of contentment and joy that exists within every person, that clear space of good feeling that is within every person which is the goal of spirituality. Another devotee, Baba. Let's see. Please give some advice to us who are worldly people with family responsibilities. Baba, who is a worldly man? It is not the children, wife, Home and business that bind the person to the world. It is the feeling of mine and thine that binds one to the world and makes one a worldly person. So it's not out of circumstances. In those days, a lot of people would say, I want to renounce the world and go to a cave. And Bob would say, That's, it's, a, it's an inner thing. It's not, it hasn't anything to do with circumstances of life. He says, as long as ideas about the world arise in one's mind, one will continue to experience the duality of pleasure and pain. The way out is to learn to renounce the world mentally because it exists in the mind alone, to do something inwardly. Real happiness lies in such renunciation. 
when you can get to a space where there's no attachment and aversion, you're living your life, but you're not freaked out by everything that happens. You're not desperate to force something to happen or to avoid something, and you're not in that tension, then you, then you can be in that place. It doesn't matter what's happening outside. It's your relationship and your emotion and mind relationship to that which counts. He says, everyone unknowingly experiences this happiness while relaxing at night. Because when you go to sleep at night, you let it all go. And you go into a state of relaxation and replenishment in that sleep. <clears throat> However enterprising and rich a man may be, he cannot be happy unless he has a good night's rest. But to get a good night's rest, he has to cast aside not only his wealth and possessions, but also his thoughts and even business plans for the time being. It's interesting because whatever we're about in our life, out of life, we have to let it all go and find something inward, and that's called sleep, because it goes to a place inside of us. Thus he becomes happy by abandoning and not by embracing worldly thoughts during sleep. Try to attain this thought-free state of mind even while you're awake. And of course, that's meditation. Abandoning all of that, if we abandon all of that tension, all that drama, we get to a place of, of refreshment. And that comes up and then enters our life and invigorates our life and, and reinvigorates and, and illumines our life. He says, Baba says, one does not have to abandon anything physically to attain God. Even if one wishes, one cannot do so because everyone's destiny is preordained. It can never be put off or changed. Therefore, to learn to make the best use of your circumstances uh, and the means at your disposal, learn to make the best use. So take where you're living and don't try to shift all the circumstances around, but shift your orientation to them so that you can dwell amidst it in peace. Let the world remain as it is, Baba says. Try to forget it and turn your mind inward. Sit quietly and meditate on the self. Visualize and realize God within you. My advice to you <clears throat> is that just as you reserve time for business and other activities, devote some time to repetition of God's name and meditation. So meditation is like practice of this. So it means establish a practice. Bob would be very intense about it. People tell me, oh, I have, so much, I have so much to do. I have no time. I have so many things to do. Of course, if they wanted to, they could make time in their busy schedule. Bob says, put it in your schedule. Make sure that you meditate every day. Put aside some time for mantra repetition. If you keep up regularly with this practice, you'll find that gradually it continues effortlessly throughout the day. And gradually, if you practice, your whole life changes. It shifts. There's more light comes in. There's so much power in the mantra that by meditating on it or by repeating it, a person becomes godlike in the course of time. This does not happen in other cases. For instance, continuous repetition of the name of a doctor or an engineer will never make a person a doctor or an engineer. 
<clears throat> Dr. Mr. Dr. Miller, Dr. Miller, Dr. Miller. I'd become a doctor. <laughs> Very funny. <clears throat> Develop the spirit of faith and surrender to God. Ensure yourself with God so that he'll help you in the hour of need. I've got many more, too many more. How many more should I do, Dave Mark? One. Huh? One. One? Uh, well, I was actually, oh yeah. Oh, it doesn't matter. The night is young. The night is young. Uh, I'll tell you what, okay, here's a good one. About anxiety. That's the disease of our culture and our time, isn't it? Anxiety. Lucky. We've got the internet and devices which have decreased anxiety <laughs> tremendously. <laughs> Fortunately, in olden times before the internet, people were very anxious. And now that we have devices to be on all the time, there's hardly any anxiety left. <laughs> very good for our mental health. <clears throat> Cynthia, this is December of 1971. And Cynthia was uh, an English woman. Baba, she was a philosophy student. Baba called her Philosophy England. <laughs> or more precisely, Philosophy England. Philosophy England. <clears throat> when I recently asked a question about money, you replied that the real problem was not money but anxiety. I can understand this in some ways, but there's still doubt and worry. Would you please explain the problem further with regard to money and anxiety. <clears throat> Baba, you're addicted to anxiety just as certain people are addicted to taking tea at a certain hour every morning. <laughs> Wonderful. You're addicted, addicted to anxiety. It's true that we have certain habits of mind and it's kind of an addiction and we go there. And you have to see the habit and then you have to gather the power to move in a different direction. And you can gather that power through meditation, through mantra repetition. The Bible says, man keeps worrying unnecessarily. There's no need for that. One saint says to another, why should a devotee of the Lord, a Vaishnava, worry about his food and his money? Baba says, when God is capable enough of taking care of all creatures, why can he look after your small needs? Why worry unnecessarily? What does the Bible say? Uh, God takes care of the beasts of the field and say, you know, don't worry. <clears throat> Take the case of our elephant. Baba had an elephant named Vijay. And uh, he came every morning, every morning to the courtyard to be fed by Baba. Especially if people sent chocolate to the ashramites, Baba would feed the elephant <laughs> chocolate, and we would look on. <clears throat> he eats so much, and yet all that he needs is supplied to him by the Lord. Why should you worry about your little needs? Get free of anxiety completely. If you have to think, then think about God. It's a wonderful thing. Get free of your... Baba taught me something by saying this all the time. He said, he would say things like that. Don't be anxious. Like as though 
you could control it. And then I realized that in his mind, you can. It's a choice you make. And sometimes we're overwhelmed by these, you know, this predisposition to worry or to anger. Uh, we feel that we can't control it. But gradually we can gain control inwardly in the inner world. And then we say, oh, anxiety is no good. I'll just shift off it. So he says, <clears throat> if you th have to think, think about God. Do not feel anxious about anything. What's the use of feeling anxious in a place like the ashram where you should be completely free of anxiety? <clears throat> I read a story in Vedantic literature which I'm reminded of in this moment. And this is one of my favorite stories. Two ants lived in two different hills. They were sisters. <clears throat> there was, one was living on a hill of salt, and the other was living on a hill of sugar. <clears throat> the one living on the mound of sugar was perfectly happy. I have to translate it into um, contemporary prose, because in, in that context, sugar is good and salt is bad in this, the context of the story. So don't argue with that about, you know. <clears throat> the one living on the mountain of sugar was very happy, while the other living on the mountain of salt was reduced to a skeleton. <laughs> one day a fair was held down below in the plain and both sisters met. When the two sisters met each other after a long time, <clears throat> they, showed great, uh, they showed great love for each other. When the sugar ant saw the pitiful condition of her sister, she felt very concerned and invited her home. She wanted to fatten her sister up and bring some joy into her life. The salt ant came to the hill of sugar. <clears throat> After one month, the sugar ant looked at her and thought, she is still miserable as before. Why is that? <clears throat> I guess Cynthia was looking like the salt ant to Baba. He could have told that story when I was going through my thing. <clears throat> she went to the sister's room uh, while she was out. Sister was out. Uh, she looked under her bed and found her suitcase and opened it and it was full of salt. Even on the hill of sugar she was eating salt. Baba says, you're like the salt ant. The ashram is a hill of sugar and you brought your own anxieties with you. <laughs> Isn't it true? We, wherever we go we bring our luggage, we bring all the salt in the luggage. <clears throat> continuing, and Baba says, continuing to be anxious is like continuing to eat salt when you're on a mound of sugar. And Baba would say that the world is actually a mound of sugar if you could see it properly. But because we see it a certain way, it becomes a mound of salt. If you feel anxious even here, where every possible facility is made available to you, then what can any, anyone say about you? <laughs> Here a bell is rung to indicate the time of sleep, and another one is rung to wake you up, and there's a bell for every meal, and you can never forget what is expected of you at the next moment. <laughs> Does that sound like heaven or hell? 
<laughs> the Baba was heaven. Every morning, 3.30, the bell rang. Woke you up, and you go right for it. <clears throat> so even if, if, here, if, even if here you're seized by anxiety, that means you are chronically addicted to anxiety. But little by little, the shakti of the ashram, the energy of the ashram, will overcome the salt you brought with you. Nice, huh? So, so we, we all arrived at the ashram, and we all arrive at yoga, at practice, at practice carrying our, all, our own uh, suitcase full of salt, which means our own tendencies, our past history, our traumas, our memories, our negativities, our fears, and we carry that. And gradually, as we stand in the shakti, which means we come to the satsang, which means we meditate in our own place, we repeat the mantra, we turn our thoughts to higher truth, gradually that erodes all the, the negative tendencies that we have, and gradually we transform ourselves and we become unrecognizable in a very good way. That's why we have to practice, and we continue to practice. So it's, uh, it's great on this anniversary. I love to celebrate uh, my great guru and his great teachings and his enormous shakti, the gift that he brought of this spiritual energy that has been transmitted to thousands and thousands of people. And according to Shaivism, that gift, that shakti, is eventually going to belong to all of us. That right now, because of the way history is, the way culture is, very few people are turning towards that great energy, which is available, which is hidden in plain view. Um, and because they're not aware of it, because they're caught up in all kinds of other things in which shakti is lost, not gained, um, they don't know it. But gradually the whole world uh, will, will be bathed in this spiritual energy, in, in divinity, in the presence of God. And so for us, it's important to start now to meditate, to look to the highest truth, and as much as possible to spread that, spread what we find to our loved ones. Sometimes we can't talk about it, but we can always manifest it. We can always be it. And so let's go inside now. We'll meditate for a few minutes. <clears throat> and everyone, absolute equality. In this, there are no rich, no poor, no uh, uh, big shots or small shots, no uh, capitalists and, or exploiters, no big pharma. Everybody is on the same page. Everybody has the same great power within them. Not one has been left out. Whether you're a, a black or white or red, a woman, a man, an elephant, everyone has this power within you. The only thing is we have to turn towards it and we have to start to connect with it. And so for 10 minutes, let's turn within and focus on the self and on this uh, auspicious day of uh, anniversary. Uh, I want to welcome and remember my guru and his great grace that actually 
brought us here and established the ashram. And I want to uh, acknowledge the self within every one of you, every person watching, every person here, every person watching online, and every person everywhere that this great principle, this divine principle is within every human being, full measure. And also I want to celebrate the method by which we can attain that. The basic method of it is meditation. Through meditation, through turning our awareness inward towards our core, towards our essence, we can attain that. There's nothing in the world, no form of government, no social illness, no, uh, no uh, exploiter, no dominator can stop you from knowing your own self. Nothing can do it except you. And if you allow it, then you can attain that. So make that effort, turn within, and know the self. And we'll meditate now for 10 minutes. So once again, it's great love and respect. I welcome you all with all my heart. Satgurnath Maharaj Ki Jai. Let's meditate now.